Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Russia and Ukraine moved closer to all-out war after Russian Coast Guard forces fired on three Ukrainian naval ships in the Kerch Strait and seized them and their crew. Several Ukrainian naval members were wounded during the confrontation. Ukraine has responded by declaring martial law and has put its forces on higher alert in case of a wider confrontation with Russia. Joining the crisis next door to make sense of the situation is Dr. Donald Jensen with the Center for European Policy Analysis and a Russian security professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Dr. Jensen, good to have you back with The Crisis Next Door. Well, thank you. It's been a very, very busy week, as you just indicated, and uh, glad to be back on the show. Busy is certainly the word to say in this regard. First off, let's paint a picture of where the skirmish took place. How critical is the Kerch Strait, and why are Russia and Ukraine squabbling over it? Well, it's a critical place, and if your listeners can listen, imagine the Black Sea, which is in international waters, which is the area fought over for decades, <laughs> including before World War One, the area to the east of Istanbul. And the Sea of Azov is a small sea that feeds into the Black Sea, and that feeds into the Black Sea uh, through a choke point called the Kerch Strait. And if you imagine the Golden Gate, and how you have to go through to get into the broader bay, or to get out. And that's roughly similar to what's going on here. The Sea of Azov uh, is, under, is disputed, be, uh, partly because of the, mostly because of the Russian invasion. And so the question of whose waters are they is uh, in some dispute, and those, those, that dispute is governed to some extent, but not completely by international law. And uh, Ukraine has a port inside the sea. So in order to go from the Black Sea, Ukrainian ports, to Mariupol is the name of the city, you've got to go through the choke point into a sea, which is very much in contention and which the Russians claim as Russian, even though nobody recognizes it as fully Russian outside of Moscow. So... Uh, the convention has, excuse me for the background, but it, 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 it's been very difficult this week to find out exactly what has been going on. Ukraine has given the Russians notice, gone through the strait, and, and provided goods and other things for the city of Mariupol on the Sea of Azov. But the Russians now are interfering with that. And that's really the dispute this week. And the Russians not only have interfered with the shipping, as you said, they have rammed the Ukrainian boats and fired on them, wounding several Ukrainian sailors. So it's an international crisis. On the one hand, it's not in violence more intense than the fighting that goes on every day in eastern Ukraine, which is largely driven by the Russian invasion. But it's a broadening of the, of the conflict to the sea, which hasn't happened before. And second, the Russians have openly admitted they fired on it. 
And as you may, we talked about it, I think, last time, the Russians have usually denied that their forces are involved in the fighting on land in eastern Ukraine. So it's a broadening of the fighting. It's an admission by Russia they were involved. But they, of course, claim the Ukrainians provoked them. And the evidence clearly suggests that's not the case. Putin has other, other motives for getting involved here, as he always seems to when it comes to Ukraine and dealing with the United States. While this incident grabbed some big headlines around the world, is it really much of a surprise? Ukraine and Russia have been harassing each other in the Sea of Azov for several months after Russia opened a 19-kilometer bridge linking mainland Russia and the Crimean Peninsula over the Kerch Strait. Should we have just expected it to reach this point? Uh, yes, we should have, and hindsight is always very clear. But I think people hoped against hope that it would not expand it the way that it has. The, the Russian bridge over Kerch has been a very controversial thing. It, it, the waters there are really rough, and it's very difficult to build something there. And there have been many false attempts. But the Russians built it with a low, uh, low ceiling above the water so it would prevent automatically some Ukrainian vessels from going in. So I think looking back, we should have expected something like this. And frankly, to, to, I guess, agree with your point, uh, it's a low enough threshold that Putin may well have calculated this will be a good thing to test the West, to harass the Ukrainians, and the West is not going to respond very, very strongly. So it's, it's, it's at a threshold probably lower than something that would require more Western sanctions. And so I think the Kremlin probably calculated it could send a message, cause a little trouble, as we've argued in our recent paper from my think tank, chaos export is really what the Kremlin does very well, and that's sort of the base of Kremlin foreign policy. So I think it was sort of a low-threshold thing that Putin could do and get away with it. But the alarm in Kiev and the alarm in some places in Washington was very strong on Sunday and Monday. And as you saw, Nikki Haley's remarks yesterday at the U.N. were pretty strong. We'll get to Putin's motives in just a little bit. I want to ask you about Ukraine and President Petro Poroshenko. He did convince his country's parliament to approve martial law in mm-hmm. 10 of the country's 27 regions, saying the move will help strengthen Ukraine's defense capabilities and increase mm-hmm. against increasing aggression from Russia. Uh, Russia and Ukraine have been locked in a land battle in Ukraine's Donbass for four years after even those little green men seized Crimea for Russia in 2014, mm-hmm. yet Kiev mm-hmm. never declared martial law. Why now, and what does it mean for Ukraine? Well, that's that's really the question. Now, I should tell you, I've been in consultations with the Ukrainian government this week about this, and I will tell you what I told them, which is to say I have no problem, and I think many in the West have no problem, with, with uh, a state of emergency in the combat areas, uh, around where the fighting is going on, and 10,000 people have died. This is not idle skirmishing. This has been a really a full-scale war. But when Parish, the Ukrainian President Poroshenko declares a state of emergency without a limit and throughout the country, it looks to many people, not just his critics or the Kremlin, and not, but to his friends like, like myself. And it, it, it looks like he's doing it for political gain. There's a presidential election next March. He's trailing in the polls, and a lot of people speculated, particularly on Sunday and Monday, that he was doing this to to have an excuse to cancel the election, to stay in power. We've all seen how this kind of state of emergency operates elsewhere. But at the RADA the legislature uh, debate yesterday on the bill, he shortened the state of emergency to 30 days, very short. He reassured the other people in the parliament 
that there would be elections. They scheduled an election date. So that made it, and I told the Ukrainians this, that made it much more politically acceptable to do what they what he's done, which is to declare a state of emergency, and he limited it to the area of conflict along the eastern border with the fighting, and also along the Black Sea. So now, if you look at a map, you'll see that the state of emergency, or excuse me, the state of martial law, will not apply to the whole country, and that I think makes it much more palatable to Ukraine's Western friends in the European Union and in NATO and here in Washington that. This is something they can live with, given the situation. I'm still not fully convinced that you need this to prosecute the war, but the way he limited it, I can go along with. So I think it came out okay in the end, given the very difficult situation that's going on in eastern Ukraine. Could this provocation this week actually help Poroshenko in, in that election? I mean, his campaign features the slogan, Army, Language, Faith. And Could this be seen as an incident that could help him in the eyes of Ukrainians, in that he's got a strong response to Russia, he's willing to stand very up to Moscow? So. Very much so. Uh, you may have noticed that they, I think they burned a Russian diplomatic car in Kiev, and they picketed in front of the Ukrainian embassy. So uh, his, his political support is declining, and I think Russia may misread the situation because it's declining because oh. people are angry at the corruption and the economic situation. They've been in a war for four years. His support has not declined because people are want peace with Russia. They are relatively unified behind uh, Ukraine as a state, as a state that wants to be in the West, and that has not really changed. The, the debate is really over Poroshenko's handling of corruption and the economy. <laughs> Excuse me. In that sense, it might temporarily give a boost to him, but he's trailing pretty badly in the polls by eight or nine points. And let's see if that work wears off the boost from this week or whether it. Uh, he continues to trail. The uh, main rival, Yulia Tymoshenko, has been on the scene for quite a while, wants desperately to be president. Some people fear it's too close to the uh, Ukrainian energy interests and would cut a deal with Moscow. But it's a very dicey political situation. And so when you look at Ukraine as a pro-Western, growingly pro-Western country, the people who do not want to help Ukraine more or help them only up to a point, always point out the corruption. And so that's one of the, uh, fighting the corruption is one of the conditions the West puts on Ukraine when they give them loans and other uh, economic benefits from international institutions like the World Bank and the IMF. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the naval skirmish between Russia and the Ukraine with Dr. Donald Jensen with the Center for European Policy Analysis and a Russian security professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. If there are reports that Putin's approval ratings have been on a downward slope due to over pension reforms, is is this the kind of thing that he needs to maintain his strength? His well, approval there, ratings were down leading up to the seizure of the Crimea. It could well be the case. I think you might want to see this in addition to testing the West, but as a way to pump up his poll rating at home, which, as you correctly uh, point out, has been declining. And this, I would go further to say there's a lot of evidence that the decline is now more independent. It's kind of the chauvinistic response we saw before to the military action in Ukraine. But people may be more angry about corruption and, and the state of the economy than they are proud to be Russia as a great power. And so... I don't think whatever boost he might get temporarily from this is going to make much difference. As you said, 
because of the pension reform, because of a lot of things, the end of the Putin system, I think, is kind of approaching. And the question really for the Russian leadership is how they deal with it. And I don't, there are not many other countries to invade. So I, I think they've got a real problem on their hands. And this may have had, in any case this week, the added advantage of maybe pumping up the poll rating a little bit because people are, uh, uh, people are proud that Russia sort of back as a great power. But I think people like to watch the war on TV and don't really want to sacrifice for it. That's the problem Putin faces. He's sort of running out of scenarios to pump up his rating, which continues to slowly kind of decline. It goes up a little bit and declines again. And that's been going on for quite a while. And you say the first sign of it to, to outsiders was the pension reform unhappiness in uh, the spring. So that seems to be continuing. And that's a real price crisis for the regime because the regime depends on Putin's poll rating really for the legitimacy it needs to, to govern. So it's a real crisis I think we're approaching. It doesn't mean there will be a coup, but it means the system is under a great deal of stress at almost every level. And that's not very good for Putin's rule or what's going on over there. Ukraine then gets wrapped into this because people would see, people see the, decline, the drift of Ukraine to the West, which is unquestionably happening to the U.S., toward the U.S. and its attitudes, toward the EU, to NATO. People see that in Russia as a threat to Russia's national identity. Ukraine is to the Russians what Texas or California is to Washington. And uh, to lose a big chunk of what they see as the country uh, is a real, it causes a real heartburn. And on the other hand, Ukraine is really is a separate country, and it's getting more so by the day. And so this is a really, really bloody, tragic situation in the long run. Ukraine will probably end really pretty close to the Western institutions. But the road to there is going to be very difficult, as we've seen. Anything can happen, as we saw on Sunday, and a lot of that is unexpected. So people sort of get kind of sheepish and want to expect almost anything. With Russia now open publicly about the naval skirmish, might it be bolder when it comes to the Donbass? Should Kiev be legitimately worried about a bigger move from Moscow on its territory? They could, should be, and they should be ready for anything. And as you saw, as you mentioned at the introduction to your, your, your remarks, they put the military on high alert. The problem with escalating in the Donbass, there are several problems, one of which is that the, the war has sort of degenerated into a World War I-style fixed slogging, daily artillery barrages, snipers, a really nasty situation. For Putin to escalate that would really impose a great deal more stress on the Russian military, reformed as it is, and people would, boy, Russian boys would be going home in body bags. Russian people do not want that. That's one reason why Putin has never really officially admitted that Russian troops are in the Donbass. The U.S. and Western assistance militarily, diplomatically, and above all the sanctions has really made a difference, and it's bought Ukraine's military time to reform they're nowhere near as good as the Russians are, but they're the second largest army in Europe now. So the cost of Putin escalating the, the military uh, situation from Russia's point of view in Donbass are really, really kind of prohibitively high. Some people think they could do it, but it would trigger a reaction from the West, I think, that would be severe, including more sanctions. And I think that Putin, at the moment at least, does not want to take that chance. It's much easier for the Kremlin to calculate that Ukraine's corruption will catch up to the Poroshenko government, that he will lose next March, that the result could be a government that's much more sympathetic to Moscow's demands 
uh, that was, and I think that's what they're calculating now. Just stretch it out, get a government more amenable to the Kremlin's wishes in March, and then we'll talk. And I'll, or alternatively, keep the situation going as it is now, stalemate, bloody, nasty, uh, and, and that can be perpetuated pretty much forever. Because the Ukrainian military, while strong enough with Western help to stop the Russians so far, is not strong enough to push back. So we're in this kind of gray area, reminiscent to some of 1914 or the Vietnam War, where it seems to go on and on and on without really a breakthrough. And that's what Putin is counting on, the tire... The, the weariness of the Ukrainian people on this to kind of allow Russia to eventually get its way. I think so. He's playing the longer game for now, at least. And can Putin win that longer game? Do you think that time is on his side in this case? Well, good question. And I think you have to look at Ukraine not as a, not as a piece on a game board, but you have to look at Ukraine as a society. And I think that Putin's major mistake was to miscalculate the extent to which the invasion has galvanized Ukrainians to a pro-Europe, pro-Western position. And I think it's going to be a generation, if if not more, before they get into these institutions, if ever. But the attitudes in in Ukraine now are strongly nationalistic, strongly anti-Russian, and strongly pro-U.S. and and pro-Western. This is a huge change from just four years. Huge. We're talking about a country that historically has been part of the Russian Empire and has been... There are many, many families with Ukrainian and Russian mixed blood, and it's, it's, it's been traumatic for a lot of people. But uh, the, the Achilles' heel has always been uh, the very Soviet-style, corrupt, oligarchic government uh, in power in Kiev. And they've had a number of elections where they've had legitimate transfers of power, but the essential post-Soviet system of corruption, monopolistic control over big industries has not really been broken. That's really the obstacle to ever getting in the EU. And that's something that that we see in some other post-Soviet countries, but particularly market in Ukraine. So the civil society, if you can think of it that way, is the average young person is very pro-American in Ukraine, and they see a government in power which is not responding as oligarchic, is is, uh, too much control over the, the judiciary and other aspects of Ukrainian society. So there's a tension there. And that's the tension I think Putin wants to exploit. He figures sooner or later there will be demonstrations on the street. Poroshenko will fall and Russia could take pick up the pieces and take advantage of the ensuing chaos. I think that's what he's counting on for now. Uh, I'll give the Ukrainians credit, however. They've been much more determined and unified despite all their misgivings about the Poroshenko government. Much more so than I think a lot of people expected. And other, the other surprise really has been the extent to which the West, particularly the European Union, has remained united in terms of strong sanctions against Russia. Russia had been calculating that the countries that want better relations with Moscow, Italy, Spain, Hungary, would somehow break the unanimity required for the sanctions, but they haven't yet. And so Russia has miscalculated, I think, repeatedly the Ukrainian and Western reaction to what's been going on. Whether that will continue is another discussion, but so far, so good from the point of view of those of us, and I include myself, who want to see Ukraine as a functioning Western uh, democracy. It's very hard in the West to to imagine the mixed feelings and now hatred, but once close between Ukraine and Russia. I think of it as the U.S. and Britain, or U.S. and Canada. You know, and the, the British, 
the British invaded us, what, several times before they finally <laughs> agreed that America would be independent in 1812, and they helped the Confederacy. And so despite the cultural similarities between Russia and Ukraine, there are differences, there are serious differences, and those probably will take a long time to play out, perhaps tragically, but I hope not. A very conflicted history between Ukraine yeah, and yeah. Russia, Dr. Jensen. Dr. Jensen, thank you very much for joining us again on The Crisis Next Door. I look forward to chatting with you again in the near future. Thanks. My too. We've been joined by Dr. Donald Jensen with the Center for European Policy Analysis and a Russian security professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.